I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 as we continue our series, Your Mission Should You Choose to Accept It. Luke chapter 10, and we are going to be looking together at verse 9 to verse 12. Let's pray as we come to the Bible. Our Father God, thank you for the truths about your word that we've just been singing and praying in song. And we pray indeed, Lord, that your word would be beautiful to us. It would encourage us, correct us while we're necessary, strengthen us, send us out with hope and courage and a message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, and I will read for us from verse 9 to verse 12. Let's hear God's word. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Teddy bears are a near universal delight of childhood, and I suppose even a delight of adults, too, to some regard. We remember them with fondness, teddy bears. Originally, teddy bear had a message. It was connected to President Theodore, or Teddy Roosevelt. The backstory of it goes, roughly speaking, like this. Roosevelt had publicly taken a stand on a controversial issue and taken a stand on the righteous side of it. He was off on a hunting break in Mississippi. He loved to go hunting, did Roosevelt. And in those days, in the way that hunting parties were constructed for presidents of the United States, they had a catcher to first trap the bear for them. And this particular catcher had found a rather small bear and had smacked it over the head a few times so it was nearly dead but not quite. Tied it to a tree and then called for the president, President Roosevelt, to come finish the job. Roosevelt got there, the story is, and he saw this bear looking very pathetic. And it was so small, tiny, probably smaller than him at that stage of his life, that Roosevelt point-blank refused to finish the job. The Washington Post uh, caught this story, and they published a cartoon on 16th of November 1902, which depicted Roosevelt and this very small bear, and Roosevelt refusing to, to kill it, entitled... The cartoon was entitled, Drawing the Line in Mississippi. Serendipitously, two manufacturers, uh, 
Steve's in Germany and Mictum in Brooklyn, right at that same time, after that cartoon, Drawing the Line in Mississippi, began to produce stuffed little bears with button eyes and movable joints. And so history was made. The teddy bear was born. One historian summarized, the competing bears soon fused into a single, into a single cuddly entity that attached itself to the nickname of the President of the United States. The messaging of Teddy Bear has shifted down through the years. Some of us would have known that backstory, I suppose. Others of us would not. But when we think of Teddy Bear, we don't immediately think of the President of the United States. It shifted and altered down through the years that have taken place since that event first occurred and that cartoon was first published. Messages can do that. Uh, By the nature of humanity, we grasp the point at one moment and then the communication gets befuddled and confused through the conversation about it until the message is no longer quite what was originally intended. And sometimes the same thing can even happen with the Christian message. In fact, in many ways it has. The cross and what it means. For some of us, we have a clear idea of what the cross means, but by and large, many people, when they look at a cross, they think of a piece of jewelry or some sort of religious symbol, maybe, but they're not really clear what it is, what the message is. And these days, there's great confusion as to what the Christian message is. When I talk to people who are considering Christian faith, it seems to me very often when they're rejecting Christianity, what they're actually rejecting is something that I would reject too, but that's not Christianity. The message has got blurred. It isn't always the case, but often it is that they're not understanding what the message is. You find the same thing in church circles too sometimes. People feel like they have a grasp of what the message is, but really when you dig down, they're not... It's got twisted in their mind and confused and muddied. So our task this morning is to identify and clarify our message. That's what we're doing today, and we've got a series that we've been working through in Luke's Gospel, and each time we remind ourselves of where we are in the Gospel, because a text without a context can itself become muddied and confused. And so we need to remind ourselves that Luke has an overall message. He's telling us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and he wants us to have certainty about that message. And in particular, he wants us to experience salvation, to be saved, and then to take that message of salvation to the ends of the earth. In the second half of Luke's gospel, the part of Luke's gospel that we are in, Luke constructs the story around a number of encounters and themes on the way as Jesus is going to the cross, as he's going to Jerusalem. And each of these encounters has a particular theme. And the theme of the one that we're looking at is mission, and hence our series, Your Mission, Should You Choose to Accept It. And we've seen that there are a number of questions that we then have to answer. Will you follow? Will you go? Will you pray? Will you be brave? Will you hurry? 
And then last week we looked at, will you be provided for? What an important thing to make sure we understand, that if we put Jesus first and his kingdom, we can trust him to look after us, even those practical ways. And we looked at that last week. Well, this week, what is your message? Five points. First, your message is demonstrated by what you do. Jesus tells them, verse 9, heal the sick. Obviously, this is an action. Your message is demonstrated by what you do. Now, as we think of healing, we need to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here and how it rightly applies to us. It's very clear anyone with any passing familiarity with the New Testament will be aware that Jesus was a healer. And it is also very obvious that his followers healed too. So we must not miss it, but we also must not misunderstand it. Both can take place. Neither must we miss what is obvious, that Jesus was a healer and his followers healed, nor must we misunderstand it, what it means by application of practicality today. Sometimes in the New Testament, the word for healing is basically equivalent to the word for salvation. Some various translations you have. Some translations will translate a particular word as healed, and another translation will be translated as saved, because that word for healing or salvation is effectively equivalent. And what it's saying, therefore, is that this is part of the wider, bigger salvation project that God has for his people. In other times, sometimes uh, here in Luke, as in this word here for heal, the word for heal means treat medically or heal. Do we catch a whisper of Dr. Luke's concern for observing the medical healing that took place? Now, Jesus' healing miracles were sign miracles. Each of them had a message. Jesus did not heal everyone, even in first century Israel. He wasn't a ambulatory hospital. His healings were sign miracles. They were for a, for a point. And each healing that he did spoke of a greater salvation. You can see this all over the New Testament. Most famously in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus heals a blind man, first partially and then fully. And then right after it, Peter first partially sees who Jesus is and then fully sees who Jesus is. So the healing of the blind man in two steps was to teach us about what full seeing who Jesus is means. You get the same thing in Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel chapter 7, when John the Baptist sends messages to Jesus saying, are you the one who is to come or are we to expect someone else? And what Jesus then sends those messengers to go back and say to John the Baptist is, look at all these healings. I am the one who is to come. The signs are in the healings. The healings are sign miracles. 
Now, sometimes when I hear people making this point and teaching on it, I think there can be an added confusion which is brought in, which it seems to me, it feels to me, that the impression is given that therefore the healings are merely illustrations. Well, they're not merely illustrations. These people were physically healed. They're demonstrations of the coming of the kingdom of God in power that will be fully realized in the new heaven and the new earth. But they're not merely illustrations. They're demonstrations of who Jesus is and what the kingdom is. Even in the Bible, miraculous healings are therefore relatively rare. Healing miracles in the Bible tend to cluster around the great salvation events. There's a cluster of miracles around the exodus the saving event of God bringing his people out from slavery, a cluster of miracles. There's a cluster of miracles around Elijah and Elisha, who are very much a new exodus that God's people in those days needed. Of course, there are miracles around Jesus, the Savior, and the apostles as they witness to the Savior. I think that's important to get straight in our mind as well, that even in the Bible, miraculous healings are relatively rare and point to the saving work of God. Now, as I thought about this over the years, it seems to me that there's no doubt that there were healings in the early years after the New Testament times as well. It seems to me no doubt about that. I'm sure there were some fake things as well, but there's no doubt there were healings, and there's much evidence of this. I came across this again recently when I was reading about the first, or one of the early missionaries to the United Kingdom, my own country back home, and the man who became the, archbishop, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, Bede, the historian of that time, basically tells us that he turned up, he met the pagan king, he did a whole bunch of miracles, told him that he did those miracles because of the power of Jesus, and the pagan king believed. And Bede, the historian, may be exaggerating, I suppose, but I think there must have been a, at least an element of truth to that. There seems no doubt that healings took place after New Testament times as well. And in my mind, there's absolutely no doubt that healings take place today too. If you've been on the missions field, you will come across these things perhaps more regularly than we do in the United States, maybe, or in the West. But I remember when I was at Cambridge University as an undergraduate, I had a good friend there called Andrew King, who was studying to be a medical doctor. And he had been diagnosed with an aggressive brain tumor, cancer, at about 10 years of age. And a missionary was visiting his family. Uh, his, his parents were leaders in the church where they were, and the missionary came to visit them, was staying with them. They told this missionary about their child's diagnosis with a fast and aggressive brain tumor. The missionary laid hands on Andrew, young Andrew's head, and he was miraculously healed. And there he was at Cambridge University studying to be a medical doctor. His brain was working just fine. These things do happen. But also there's no doubt, by the same token, that faithful, prayerful Christians are not always healed. That must be the case. I mean, unless Jesus returns, all of us will face death at some point, so we won't always be healed. 
It is also, I think, important in this regard to draw the clear distinction between healing and cure. None of us in this side of, of the grave will ever be fully cured because at one point we will be sick and die. Uh, all our healings in this side of glory are therefore temporary before the eternal full healing in glory. I remember one time we prayed very hard for a child not to die. And this child was at death's door and seemed extremely likely to die. And we prayed hard that this child would not die. And through medical intervention means, and I think through the power of God, through prayer too, and how God in his sovereignty uses medical means as well as the miraculous, is part of this conversation, of course. But as we pray, that child was healed. But not completely, not cured. And in fact, the family of that child wrestled with for many, many years afterwards as they dealt with all the medical complications of that child. There is a difference between healing and cure, and cure is only ever really something that takes place in heaven. Now, we need to think clearly about this because we live in a therapeutic age. We're so fixated on the feeling that we can always get better and always be more healthy, and that isn't necessarily the case. There's a book by Philip Reef called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. He puts it perfectly in his last sentence of that book. He says this, that a sense of well-being has become the end rather than a byproduct of striving after some superior communal end announces a fundamental change of focus in the entire cast of our culture. We're always fixated on therapeutically getting better rather than getting on mission. Now, I have to say a word here for the scientists among us. When we say we believe that God heals miraculously, as of course we do believe that, we are not thereby saying that God randomly ruins the established rules of nature. Of course not. The rules of nature are an expression of the way that God, in his orderly character, generally, uh, sovereignly rules the universe. And miracles are the way that he unusually and atypically rules the universe. Professor Sir Colin Humphreys, who's a Christian believer, has a wonderful illustration about this that I think is quite helpful. He says, uh, think of how a composer writes a piece of music, but a composer can also build into that composition what are known technically as accidentals. And somewhat similarly, God is the composer of the beautiful piece of music of our whole universe, also builds in accidentals miracles. It's an illustration, but quite a good one, I think. Well, what does it mean that our message is demonstrated by what we do? What does that mean practically? Well, it means caring and healing ministries. Now, but once we say that, we also need to be clear in our mind. This is a demonstration of the gospel. It's not the gospel itself. When we care for someone, we're not preaching the gospel. We're demonstrating the truth of the gospel. It's an important thing to do, but it isn't the message. 
It's not two wings of the bird, and they're both the message. These are a demonstration of the gospel. It witnesses the gospel in a very important way, but it isn't itself the gospel. Jesus says heal, and then afterwards he says say. There's a message too, which the healings and the caring ministry support. So then most practically, I think what this means is that we do something to care for those around us, even though we can't do everything. Even Jesus didn't heal everyone in first century Israel. We can't do everything, but we can do something to demonstrate the truth of the message that we believe, praying, caring. And then corporately, one of the amazing things about College Church, so you get to know this church, is how active we are as a group in these caring ministries. Our disability ministry is extremely active to care for some of the least among us. And the resale store that supports all the homes that help with some of that. The Twice is Nice resale store, and many, many, the outreach community center that we're involved in, many other things. We need to demonstrate the truth of our message by what we say first. Second, your message is the saving rule of Jesus, the kingdom of God. Now, Christians are also very confused about what the kingdom of God is, so let's think about that together. What is, first, a kingdom Well, a kingdom is where the king rules. That's what a kingdom is. What then is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where God's king, Jesus, rules. That's the kingdom of God. How, therefore, is Jesus' kingdom established? Jesus' rule, his kingdom, is established through saving sinners and bringing them into his kingdom. That's the advance of the kingdom of God. Luke uh, teaches on this over and over again. Luke chapter 1, verse 33. Uh, Jesus is inheriting the kingdom of David. He's the fulfillment of what he's great David's greatest son. He's the king that David was meant to be, the true king, King David. The fulfillment of that is King Jesus. Or chapter 13, verse 18 and following. Just one little seed, the seed of God's word, grows the kingdom because the seed of God's word, when received, transforms individual lives and societies and groups and grows and develops. And then that leads into salvation. Jesus says, how then will those be saved? Because to come into the kingdom is to come into salvation through the narrow door. That kingdom then is within us, chapter 17, verse 21. It's within us because the kingdom is the regenerative work of God's Spirit that transforms us from inside out. Or then, chapter 19, verse 12, those who thought the kingdom was going to come any moment, Jesus tells a story of, no, there's, there's a lot more to come, and then there'll be a last day when in the new heaven and new earth, in other words, the kingdom has an eternal reach, finally, and The final fulfillment is eternal. Well, I think most clearly that this is the saving rule of King Jesus is found towards the end of the gospel when Jesus is on the cross. And the thief says to Jesus in Luke 23, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, when is that kingdom? What would it be like? And then Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's the eternal saving relationship that leads to heaven, that is paradise. Now, in those days, this message must have been deeply shocking 
Jesus said, those who are children of Abraham, they think they're children of Abraham. You think you're in the kingdom, but unless you follow me, you're not. It must have been astonishingly, outrageously shocking. One scholar, Beasley Murray, puts it like this. It was axiomatic, that is, it was standard. It was axiomatic for the Jews of Jesus' time that the kingdom of God belonged to them. Jesus comes along and says, well, just because you're uh, ethnically a Jew, unless you believe in me, then you're not in the kingdom. Why? Because Jesus is the king, and if you don't have him as your king, you're not in the kingdom. It must have been deeply shocking. But it's also deeply shocking today when we understand what Jesus is saying. For it is axiomatic or standard accepted truth for our day. It is axiomatic for our day that we are all good and we do not need saving. And Jesus says, no, not at all. Unless you believe in me and have me as your king, you're not even in the kingdom. How shocking. And it's against all sorts of misunderstandings of the message. It's against the old social gospel Being good and doing the good thing will get you into the kingdom. Not at all, says Jesus. You must accept me as your king. It's against the new political gospel. All we need is some great, small, lowercase m, messianic figure to come in as a political hero and save us. Not at all. Unless you believe in Jesus as the king, you're not even in the kingdom. It's also against the Marxist gospel. What we really need is a revolution of getting the disadvantaged up on the top and those who are privileged down the bottom and a violent or social engineered revolution. That's what's going to save you. Not at all. Unless you have Jesus as your king, you're not even in the kingdom. Often we summarize this with just... Uh, four headings, God asked Jesus' response. God has made us to be in a relationship of loving obedience. We have all rebelled against him and therefore deserve death. Jesus died in our place, took our punishment, and therefore we respond. God asked Jesus' response. Have him as our king. We enter the kingdom. Third, your message has a fast approaching deadline. It's near, Jesus says. Now, what does he mean when he says it's near? Some scholars think it means that it's near in the sense that Jesus is physically coming, that is, literally coming. That he'd sent them out ahead of him to the villages, and then Jesus was walking behind, and he'd come along any moment. And in that sense, he was near. Some people think he is saying that the kingdom is near in the sense that when there is authentic preaching of the gospel, the kingdom is spiritually near. When, when God's word is preached, the kingdom is right there, and you have the opportunity to enter into it and to grow in it and become more part of the kingdom and, and to advance the kingdom. And the kingdom is near as the, as the gospel is preached. Some people think that. Other people think that the, it's near in the sense of the, the coming judgment and that must of course be an element of it for Jesus goes on to talk about the last day judgment in verse 15 you should be brought down to Hades or to hell and so that element must be there scholar called Howard Marshall tells us that the verb to it can mean to draw near but it can sometimes also mean to arrive to reach 
And that's the case. It seems to me then that probably all those three elements are in this meaning of what, what Jesus is saying by the kingdom is drawing near. It means his first coming, that is literally, it meant at the time, that Jesus was walking down the road and he was about to turn up. You better get ready. The king is coming. But it also meant then and now that when the gospel of the kingdom is preached, the kingdom is drawing near. You have an opportunity to enter into the kingdom. It's near. But then it also means, of course, that there is a final coming of Jesus' return. But how have you put together what this near means? The emphasis is on the urgent need for response. This is a time-limited opportunity. Or as our friends in Mission Impossible might put it, this message will self-destruct. It's near. It's urgent. Fourth, your message has authority. Well, that must be what Jesus means when he says, it tells them to shake the dust off their sandals as the, if their message is not received. But what exactly is the, the, the significance and intentionality and the meaning of this, this dust itself? What is he, what's the point of it and why is that being used? Usually it's interpreted by the rabbinic practice of removing dust from the Gentile nations before coming back to the Holy Land. So we know that rabbis later, when they traveled outside the Holy Land, if they, before they came back to Israel, would literally wipe the dust off their sandals because they're now coming back to the, to the Holy Land. But the trouble with that view is that it's a late interpretation. We don't know for sure whether that's what actually rabbis were doing here and now at this time. We, we, no one knows. Could have an Old Testament background. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 13. Nehemiah unfolds his garments and therefore in some way people think shakes out the dust from his garments. And maybe the two are connected, the sandals and the garments unfolding. Indeed, in the book of Acts, the apostles unfold their garments as a testimony of the authority of their message. And then also we find they shake the dust off their sandals. The same sort of idea, the two could be connected. A recent scholar thinks it's related to hospitality, which is an intriguing thought. In other words, in those days, when you went to someone's home, your feet were washed. And for them to shake the dust off their sandals is to say, symbolically, physically, and literally, you didn't practice hospitality well enough even to allow us to wash our feet. And there's some evidence from some of the early church leaders, this is right, Oregon, Chrysostom, and Tertullian all refer to this hospitality being the case. And it might make sense of the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, famous for their sexual debauchery, but they are also, in biblical times, famous for their inhospitality. Ezekiel chapter 16 talks about that. In any case, the point that Jesus is making is the message has Authority. We are messengers of the king. Now, of course, we don't have an exact equivalent today because no one goes around uh, having wa cleaning, washing the feet of their guests. We don't have an exact equivalent today. But I remember once in a church meeting where someone in that church meeting was speaking in ways that were not healthy and were potentially quite damaging. And I remember watching a church leader in that church meeting 
as he stood up to speak, literally turning his back on that person and speaking to the rest of the group. It was a powerful symbol. And so I suppose what it means then is it's in the context, isn't it, of church discipline, which is another whole topic that we don't have time to explain at length, but it is something that is practiced by healthy churches with care and kindness and slowness, even excommunication. Why? Because there is a message of Jesus that must not be corrupted. There are people who are going to hell unless they hear the message of Jesus, and it is important that we guard the health of churches. But actually, this is the reverse, isn't it? This is the message of Jesus, realizing their message is not being received, and then leaving. And of course, College Church is an independent church. We don't have any denominational hierarchy around us. We're governed by elders and led by pastors and all the rest that you're familiar with. But I have many friends who work in denominational churches, and some denominations are very healthy, of course, but others are not. And those who are in unhealthy denominations, I have many friends who are wrestling with this whole issue. There comes a moment when the message that you are preaching is not being accepted, and therefore it's the right thing to shake the dust off your sandals. When that is, is a judgment call that those people who are in those situations have to prayerfully consider. But our message has authority, and at some point that message needs to be symbolically underlined, as Jesus says here. Fifth and finally, your message has consequences. On that day, which of course is the future day of the Lord, the judgment day of God, Luke chapter 6, verse 23, Luke 17, verse 31, Luke 21, verse 34, all explain the meaning of this day of the Lord, the coming judgment day of God. And Jesus is saying here, quite remarkably, that rejecting his messengers means rejecting his message, which means rejecting him, which has deep consequences. It means something even worse than what happened to Sodom, he teaches, which of course must mean It isn't simply destruction. Sodom was thoroughly destroyed. What could be worse than that? The answer is eternal hell. That is what Jesus is referring to here, without any doubt in my mind. And we need to be clear about that. Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus says to those who are in the kingdom that they're going to enter eternal life, and those who are not in the kingdom or enter into eternal death. And if we want eternal life, there's also eternal death. You cannot have one without the other, biblically. Well, we won't get into verses 13 to 16. Chorazin and Bethsaida, they were Galilean towns, or Tyre and Sidon that were Gentile towns. Their their condemnation is talked about in Isaiah chapter 23. But the point here is the great consequences of spiritual privileges, of hearing the gospel. Heaven and hell are real. And one way, if you doubt that, is to realize that heaven and hell are around us in miniature all the time. Auschwitz, it's a little bit of hell. 
when I teach on suffering and, and Auschwitz, I sometimes refer to a book called The Black Book of Russian Jewry, which is a first-hand account of the ways that Jews were treated at that time. It is, well, it's a, it's a little bit of hell. Well, then there are little bits of heaven all around us too. If you're a Christian, you have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. That's a down payment of foretaste of heaven. And we experience that in other ways. I remember when I was a college student, I'd been working very hard, and some Christian friends of mine told me that it was enough work for a while, and they told me to come out and play. And I, I, it had been snowing that time in Cambridge, which is quite rare in Cambridge. It feels like it's getting pretty rare in Wheaton these days, but that's kind of interesting by itself. But anyway, it, it had actually been snowing, and they went out, and we had some bicycles. I remember just riding around in the snow and falling off and laughing and playing and then going back and having some hot apple cider or some hot drink together. And it was a, it was a it, in my mind, it's a, little, it's a little taste of what it will be like to be with God's people forever in glory. Or perhaps a little bit more risky. I shared this at the 8 o'clock and a few people laughed, so I dared to share it again at the 9.30. If, if 10 people laugh at the 8 o'clock, you can have 50 at 9.30 for sure. But my mother, who's gone to, be glor- gone to glory now and is experiencing a reality, she loved, my mother loved to shock a little bit and she, she loved to be quite down to earth. And when she was talking about heaven, she used to say with a, a glint in her eye and a little smile on her face, she would say, as far as she could see, having read the Bible, that heaven would be like sex, only even better. So take that from an 80-year-old grandmother. (laughs) What is your message? What is our message? It's demonstrated by what we do, for sure. It is the saving rule of Jesus. That, in essence, is the message. It has a fast-approaching deadline. It has authority, which is a very unpopular word, but so important. And it has consequences. Is our message becoming confused? There have been lots of great messages Great communicators down through history. Churchill was one of the greatest communicators down through history. There have been messengers from celebrities who seem to capture attention. But if we go a little bit off base, one degree of a ship sailing out of harbor, we'll get to a totally different place on the other side of the Atlantic. John Maxwell recounts that according to Terry Felber, Franklin Roosevelt, a relative of Teddy, had a first draft of his most famous speech, which began like this in his first draft, yesterday, December the 7th, 1941, a day that will live in world history. And after a secretary had typed out that 500-word message, Franklin Roosevelt made one slight change. He crossed out world history and replaced it with infamy, a day that will live in infamy. Just a little adjustment to get it just right. Well, we have a message. It's a message given to us. 
Not something we are at liberty to change. It's his message. It's given to believe, given to share. It has spiritual authority and is urgent. And it is such good news. A couple of years ago, I was privileged to meet a man who used to be the CEO of UPS. His name is Ron Wallace. I asked him how many people he had on his staff team at its largest. I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like 350,000, which seemed quite a lot to me. Maybe it was 25, maybe it was a couple hundred thousand. I don't remember. It made me feel much better about how many people I have on my staff team anyway. I asked him about leadership. I said, tell me, in essence, if you could put in one word, what you think the secret of leadership. This is a Christian man, Ron Wallace. He's a Christian. What do you think is the, is the essential ingredient of leadership? He said to me, looking me straight in the face, here's one word, relationships. I found that interesting. He gave me a book to read. He'd written on leadership. And in that book, he has one amazing story that I think brings to life the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. Early in his career, he'd been sent to a dysfunctional UPS store. It was broken down in all sorts of ways. No one was working very hard. The the drivers weren't turning up on time. The trucks were getting beaten up. It was totally dysfunctional. Previous people who tried to fix it had done it by increasing the disciplinarian consequences of not turning up on time. And it had engendered an atmosphere of poison. And Ron Wallace turned up and sort of looked around and felt the atmosphere and immediately took a few decisions. He immediately got rid of any recriminations for turning up late. And he told all his direct reports, I want you to stop shouting at the drivers and stop telling them off and only speak things that are upbuilding. That was his first decision. And over time, that increased and improved the atmosphere, but there was one holdout, a huge man, six foot five or something, big, large guy, a blue-collar guy, sweared every three words. He was the ringleader, tough, strong man, and he was always late, and he encouraged other people to late. He encouraged the trucks to get beaten up. And UPS at the time, they had a policy whereby over three months you were allowed three crashes in your trucks. But if you got got above that, you were fired. Three dings in the trucks. And uh, this man loved to play that game. He'd get up to three and then he was a good driver. He knew how to drive. He was very competent. He just was angry and didn't want to work. And... He got up to three, and then he knew that he would get over that day, and then he'd, he'd ding the truck three more times the next, the next few months. And he was boasting about this once more. And then for some reason on that one time, when he got up to his maximum allowed dings on the trucks or the trucks getting hit by a post or something, for some reason his eye was taken off the rearview mirror as he was reversing, and he reversed right into a, 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 a stone, a bollard or a... Or fence or something smacked the back of the truck. Ron Wallace, everyone saw it. Ron Wallace saw it and he called him into his office. The guy, guy had been a useless worker for years. He was a disastrous worker. He, he deserved to be fired in every possible way. Called him into his office. The guy sat down opposite Ron Wallace and said, So, I suppose you're going to fire me. And as Ron tells the story, he shut his eyes looked down and thought for a moment. 
And he looked this huge guy in the eye, the six foot five troublemaker, and said, no, you've got another chance. Come back tomorrow. And that six foot five guy broke down and wept. Next morning, he was on time, early, in fact, this former rebel. He saw around the, uh, the, the truck center, there were all sorts of other drivers who hadn't turned up. He got on the phone and said to them, you get here right now, it's a new day. That UPS center became incredibly successful because of an action of grace. And I'm saying that's always the right thing to do in every circumstance, but it illustrates our message. The saving rule of King Jesus, even for rebels like you and me, and it illustrates how it transforms us. Believe it. Proclaim it. Live it. This is our message. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are such a gracious, gracious king. We thank you, Lord, that in your kingdom, because of the work that you've done for us on the cross, there is space for rebels like us. We pray, Lord, that if we don't yet know you today, this message is urgent. There is a fast approaching deadline. Today we would believe. We pray, Lord, for those of us who do know you, that you would help us to stick to your message, to believe it, proclaim it, live it. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be all words and no deeds. Help us to practically care whether through the STARS ministry or outreach community or some practical action of caring, praying for healing, for sure, as a demonstration of the salvation we have experienced to act, to demonstrate who you are, to do something, though we cannot do everything. And most of all, we ask, Lord, that your kingdom would come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.